Um, so uh, a survey is conducted by an organization, a research organization called the Pew Forum, uh, suggests the following about religious practices in the United Kingdom. Apparently, the UK is the 29th most religious out of 34 European countries. 10% of people say religion is very important in their lives. 20% say they attend religious services at least monthly. 6% say they pray daily. If that's a fair reflection of the context in which we find ourselves, then it's safe to say that we cannot take for granted that people know how to pray. And Jesus Christ doesn't take it for granted either. Uh, you see, um, prayer is such a basic part of religious ritual, such a, uh, an apparently simple act. You know, you, you speak out words of desire and, and wish. Uh, that it's easy to presume that we all know how to do it properly, to do it correctly. But our Lord, by his teaching in this chapter, is clear that this is not the case. We cannot assume on prayer. There is a world of difference between true praying and false praying. Yes, one is the mark of true and genuine religion, true and vital spirituality, but there is another one, another type of praying that masquerades as though it's vital, but in the end achieves nothing, and even leaves the offerer of such prayers farther from God than when they first approached him. So it's the kind of thing that we must avoid. Um, when you, very often when parents warn or rebuke their children, I think a large part of it is because they don't want their children to make some serious mistake to bring harm to themselves. When our Lord speaks in ways that really convict us and rebuke us like this, it's because he's concerned that we don't fall into a pattern of living that can be devastating for true spirituality. He warns us against false praying. So our Lord doesn't deny that prayer is, if you want, of the essence of true religion. Um, believers will pray. Praying is vital for communion with God. Prayer is vital for seeking after God. Um, and even in this passage, even in this passage that is full of warnings against false prayer, you can see that our Lord is also clear that he expects his disciples to pray. Um, so, for one, in this section that outlines some basic parts of religion, of genuine religion, alongside fasting and giving, our Lord highlights prayer, because prayer has always been known as a basic part of uh, genuine religion. Also, the number of times that the Lord says, after rebuking or whilst rebuking false prayer, he says to his own disciples, when you pray, when you pray, when you pray, it's about three or four times, he says, when you pray, he expects us to pray. Jesus Christ's teaching is no less um, consistent with the teaching of the Apostle Paul, who says, you pray without ceasing. Our Lord himself says to the disciples, pray always. And also the extensiveness of the Lord's prayer here, right? So we're going to look at the introductory section, but actually the vast portion of this, of our Lord's words on prayer are him detailing a commendable form of prayer. This is how you should pray. And he, he, there's an almost digression for our Lord to spend a lot of time speaking about 
what true prayer seems like. So this is far from our Lord suggesting that prayer is not important, that prayer is not vital, that prayer is not a necessity in the Christian life. It is, but we must place it in the correct perspective. And our Lord is warning us that there is a kind of false religion that does the ritual but doesn't have the essence. To use Paul's words, it's a form of godliness, but it doesn't have power. It mimics that which is genuine, but it doesn't know God. There's a warning in this passage that we can be saying prayers, but not praying at all. And he's, that warning is given to you and I as Christians. You know, this passage is written to disciples. Of course, there is something about God wanting us to represent to the world genuine religion. What does true faith look like? Because, you know, vast numbers of religions pray. In fact, probably every religion you can conceive of has a facility for prayer. But Jesus Christ is saying, so, so, but we have to show the world, but this is authentic prayer. This is what true prayer is. You can say you pray, but this, this, you don't have true prayer because we have the living God. We have true prayer. Um, God wants us to do that. God wants us to show the world that and for the world to be rebuked for its dead spirituality. But Jesus Christ is actually speaking to his disciples here saying, don't, don't, don't fall into the trap um, that many, uh, many fall into who don't truly know God and, and start to pray like them. Uh, so, so there's nothing to say that Christians can't make this mistake for a time. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's something that we have, to, we have to take heed to. And to do so, um, I'm going to look at our Lord's words under just two simple headings, false praying versus true praying. What our Lord says about false praying and what he says to correct it, you know, what he also, what he says the disciple, how the disciple should model true praying. Um, and uh, yeah, we'll, we'll look at it in that way. So firstly, how Jesus Christ speaks about false praying. Now, in a, in, a, in a kind of pattern that is repeated throughout the, um, that is repeated throughout the Sermon on the Mount, <clears throat> Jesus Christ defines false praying by introducing two categories of people, the hypocrite and the Gentile, right? So verse 5, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrite. And then verse 7, when you pray, do not be essentially like the Gentiles. Uh, quickly, the, 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 the thing that maybe separates, although actually in the end you find that they're, they're one and the same, there's a, there's a oneness there because there's just no true spirituality. But the thing that separates those two groups of people is the hypocrite, though, is more representative of the person who, at least in, in the context in which our Lord is speaking, has, belongs to the true religion. They, they know of the true God. So they're going to the right places. They're coming to church, for example. But they're still not praying aright from their heart, right? While the Gentile represents the person who doesn't know of the true God, doesn't have a Bible in their hand, is not with other Christians who are generally praying, but they've made up their own way as to what true prayer looks like. It's a heavy rebuke. The first one is a rebuke enough. The second one is even heavier to say that Christians can pray as if they were unbelievers, and we should be careful not to share the same patterns as unbelievers. And so Jesus Christ defines false praying in, that two, in those two categories. And that, that we, by, by looking at those two categories a bit extensively, we can define further what false praying is. First of all, false praying, Jesus Christ says, is, is praying like the hypocrite. 
What does the hypocrite pray like? Jesus Christ says they love to stand and pray in the synagogue, in the temple, in the church. They love to stand and pray in church and prayer meetings and at the street corners where people can see them. They love to pray on the streets. Now, we must be careful to understand what Jesus Christ rebukes here. Firstly, general principle in the Sermon on the Mount, that very often Jesus Christ uses a series of almost exaggerated statements and comparisons, right? Starkly black and white, so that the point of the teaching may be more forcefully made. He's, he's speaking in very black and white times, black and white terms, without nuance. Not denying that there's nuance, but in this context, so that you don't miss the point. Uh, so, so there is a question about the literalness of what Jesus Christ is saying. Christ is not rebuking, for example, people that pray in the synagogue. Jesus Christ is not saying that false praying is when you pray in public or any form of public prayer or people that pray in prayer meetings or people that stand up to pray or people that pray in public. You know, because you go to have dinner at a restaurant and you choose to pray doesn't mean that you're engaging in hypocritical praying. That's not what Jesus Christ is saying. Don't mistake the form for the reality. Right? Um, Jesus Christ himself prayed in public. What Jesus Christ is concerned with in these passages is the motive. It's the heart behind it. And so Jesus Christ says they love to pray in the synagogue. It's not so much that they pray, but they can't wait to do that prayer because they'll be seen by others. They love to pray in the street so that they may be seen by... That's what they love. Right? So it's the motive. So even what Jesus Christ says about later on, he says, when you pray, go and pray in your closet. Even those words are somewhat metaphorical. Because a man can pray in the closet privately, secretly, and still not be praying truly. His heart can still be in the wrong place. So Jesus Christ is not making it seem like the location in and of itself is what determines genuine praying. Even the idea of a secret place is metaphorical for being concerned only with God in prayer. But that can be possible, that can be done publicly. So, so we're not to go around now judging how people pray after the sermon. Every time you see someone praying in public, even if you were going home, to home today and you saw a guy praying by the bus stop and he was even lifting up his voice in prayer, it's not your business to judge. You, don't, you can't search the heart. You know, it's a really wrong conclusion to come to in a sermon that is meant to be about your own relationship with God that you learn from this how to judge other people. Oh, I knew Brother A was a hypocrite. That's not what the sermon is for. It's for you to judge your own heart, search your own heart, for God to search your own heart. That being said, it is true. So I'm not, I don't want to say that Jesus Christ chooses uh, baseless examples. There is often as well a correlation between the form of something and its reality. The form of something may expose the heart behind it, right? You can't say, the Bible says, don't love in word only. You can't say you love someone and then cause them harm, right? The form. You, you see a man that says, I really, loved, I, I really love, I really love my, my wife. I love her. But then he's abusing her emotionally constantly. It's, the form doesn't back up the reality. So Jesus Christ, so you don't make two. The, the form and the reality are not always disparate. They're not always worlds apart. What I mean to say is there may be a problem if your prayer life is only ever public. There may be a problem if your prayer life is only ever publicized. The person who often prays in public, in the prayer meeting, for example, but does not have a private prayer life to back it should be concerned, right? I'm not saying you're a hypocrite, but you should be concerned. 
if people know me to be prayerful, but that prayer is only because of how my prayer sounds when you hear me praying, but I have no private life of prayer. It's a clear sign there's a problem. And whilst it's good for us to pray publicly, we should never be ashamed to pray. Sometimes our penchant for praying publicly while having no prayer life privately to back it should rebuke us. We don't want to fall into hypocrisy. But ultimately, what's the problem of the hypocrite here, ultimately? It's not ultimately the fact that they're praying publicly. It's not ultimately the fact that they're praying in street corners. The problem of the hypocrite here is that he or she has no true relationship with God. In all of this, Jesus Christ says, they pray to perform. For them, prayer is a performance. Uh, Like reading poetry at a spoken word event. Like giving a speech at a wedding reception. They're, They're doing something to please the audience so that they might then win the gratification of the people for themselves. They want to impress people. And Jesus Christ says, for that kind of person, that's all you have when you pray. People are impressed by you at best. You have your reward. They, 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 they just pray to impress other people. Because they have no relationship with God. They don't understand what it, they, they're not satisfied with what, you see how Christ contrasts it. Christ contrasts the person who prays publicly with the person who play, prays in secret. And with the Father who sees in secret. The, 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 the thing about praying in secret is not that you're praying in secret, is that the Father sees in secret. You can pray, many people can pray alone by themselves, and that prayer has no power. But for the believer, you know God is with you, your Father's with you. It's the relationship we have with God that makes prayer what it is, that we have a Father. That's why in this section where Jesus Christ teaches about prayer, he introduces God as our Father because prayer is about relationship. And Jesus Christ is saying, this is why the hypocrite's prayer is to be avoided. It's not based on relationship. That's why some of us, our prayer lives are not full. They're not overflowing. We don't actually have a relationship with the Father. We're not rejoicing with the Father. We see prayer as a chore. We, we see prayer merely as a duty to be observed because we were told to do so as a way of making sure that we maintain our membership. It's not the, it's not the, the, the fruit of a genuine relationship with the Father. It's not out of my love for him or my knowledge of his love for me. It comes from learning habits. There are people today who pray every single morning when they wake up and God does not know them. They pray because mommy told me so. They pray because daddy did it, but they don't know God themselves. Prayer has to be based on relationship. Otherwise, it's just for show. Otherwise, it's just so you can tweet and say, prayer changes things. Otherwise, it's just so you can tweet and say, where will I be without grandmama's prayers? That's all it is. But it makes no impression on God, as it were. It's not based on relationship. God says, never fall into that kind of prayer. Routine prayer. Prayer that is merely a formality. Prayer that is not the fruit of your knowledge of your God This is my Father. He loves me. My Father in heaven. Never let prayer flow from, never let prayer fail to flow from that source. And so we have to check our lives. We check ourselves. 
Whenever prayer is nothing but a chore or a burden or just a duty. The second thing Jesus Christ tells us is we shouldn't pray like the Gentile, false praying. How does the Gentile pray, the person who is not a Christian, the person who doesn't know anything of God? Jesus Christ references the way the Gentile prays by thinking, verse 7, that by heaping up phrases, so by babbling over and over again, they can say a lot of stuff to get God's attention. Once again, we must be careful to understand what our Lord is rebuking here and not mistake the form for the reality. Jesus Christ is not, he's not overly concerned with the form. He's not, for example, rebuking the idea of repetition in prayer to say that it's wrong for people to repeat prayers. Our Lord's most famous prayer is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he seems to be involved in repetition of prayer. God's not rebuking that. Some of you know the heartfelt place of crying to God, but you can only say the same words over and over and over again. And you know you're not being no pagan. You're crying out to your father. He's not rebuking long prayers either. Some people see this, and, and Christians who don't want to persevere in prayer can't wait. God wants all my prayers to be three minutes short. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that you can judge the authenticity, the power, the truth, the love of prayer by its length. Far from it. The Bible is full of long and short prayers. It would seem that at Gethsemane, Jesus Christ prayed for at least three hours, right? He's not saying that you should judge prayer by its length. It's not what he's saying. Or, or lastly, he's not saying that there's something wrong with, um, with written prayers. I've heard that said from the Sermon on the Mount, oh, you know, there's something wrong with prayers that are written out, you know, they're too beautiful. No, God's not saying that. You can't judge prayers that way. Some people are comfortable writing out their prayers and praying it to God. It's the heart that counts. Yes, there's some dead praying from being read, up, read from a book, but also there's some dead praying from praying from your heart. It can happen. People can pray and it's, it's, it has, it, it's, it's dead, even though it's, it's freestyle. It's, from, you know, it's spontaneous. It's not the mark of genuine spirituality either. Those, those are forms. Even in your time of deepest distress, you may be the kind of person that picks up a prayer and reads it out to God. It's possible. Don't judge it by the form. God is searching your heart. What is God, Jesus Christ, rejecting here? What are you telling us to reject? We may better understand that if we understand the actions of the Gentiles, the pagan nations. Especially, I think Jesus Christ is referring to the dynamic of the religion at that time. I'm not saying that every pagan religion prays the same way. But at that time where they thought they could win God's attention by just how much they repeated words. Um, it, it, it was, it's the idea that we're going to repeat these words and babble over and over again. Um, it, it could be, for example, a foreign, a kind of weird tongue that we just keep saying. We keep repeating the tongue, hoping, and we say, if we say this a, a, a number of times, God is going to arise for us. He will definitely work for us. Um, it's, it's suggested that in, in, in Christ's time, uh, Roman, Roman culture had a tradition, Roman paganism had a tradition of praying where, you know, when, when they would pray in their temples, they would, read a, they would read a kind of manuscript of prayer. They would read an exact script of prayer. And, they, and you had to read every single word. If you missed one word, you had to go back because otherwise you wouldn't stir up the gods. Jesus Christ is referring to that kind of thing. Um, Jesus Christ is saying, the Gentile thinks that prayer is 
for manipulating God. The, the Gentile, the pagan thinks actually what prayer does is it controls God. It twists him to do your own bidding. That's why in contrast, so previously when Jesus Christ speaks about the prayer of the hypocrite, he contrasts it with us praying in secret where our father sees in secret. In contrast with the pagan prayer, the prayer of the Gentiles, Jesus Christ says, don't you know your father knows what you need before you ask him? The God of the Christian is the sovereign God. I'm not trying to manipulate him in prayer. He knows everything before I even come to prayer. So to try and manipulate him would be foolish. The Gentile prays this way because he thinks he can control God with his words. He thinks there's something he can do. So so if the hypocrite is attempting to make an impression upon people, the Gentile thinks by prayer he's meant to be making an impression upon God. I, I can really make God, I can force God to see me. I can earn God's favor. I can deserve God's grace. Many of us might not engage in the kind of babbling that Christ rebukes here, but we can do things that fall in that same category of error. We, we can think that there's something we can add and add on prayer, spice up prayer to make God answer quickly. You know, Roman Catholicism and Roman, they have, has beads, right? Things that God hasn't required that you add because you say, you know, you roll your rosary and you say it a number of times and to think that you can stir up prayer. Or if Christians ever use statues. Or Christians who, the paraphernalia that you see sometimes in some of our Christian circles where Christians are using oil. You know, your prayer hasn't gone unless I, I, I throw some anointing oil on you. Or, you. or you get some kind of holy handkerchief, some holy cloth. All these things that you think are going to uh, speed up prayer as though God can be manipulated. You can do the same thing with fasting. You can treat fasting as this thing to manipulate God. So some Christians, every single time there's a trial in their lives, they go to fast, not so they can entrust themselves into the will of God, but so they can force God's hand. Many people fast today because they never want trouble, but God has never promised. There's no amount of prayer in this life you can do to make you avoid trouble, by the way. But many people fast for that reason. We want to manipulate God's hand. Jesus Christ says, don't pray like the pagan. And you see, where the hypocrite has erred because he doesn't have a true relationship with God, the Gentile has made the same mis- has erred because he doesn't have a true understanding of God. This is what you can expect from people who don't know the scriptures. The Apostle Paul says of the Jews, one of the great privileges they have is they actually have the scriptures. Even though they, their hearts never, they, a lot of them never came to faith, but they had the scriptures. The, the Gentiles don't have the scriptures. They pray to a God of their own making. That's why you, so many, you, you see what, when you think about how many people, what people think of prayer today, people who are not Christians, but who know that there's a, a need to cry out to some higher being. When you think about what they think prayer is, sending prayers out to you, they say, they're throwing it into the air and throwing it into the, into the universe, expecting some magical energy to carry it towards you. It's, 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 a, it's pointless. It's pointless. The, the sentiment is understood. It has zero power. Throwing out prayer. Throwing out prayers to what? For what? What's this? What's, what's this? It's psychobabble. It's not that. You better cry out to the living God who can actually do something. Jesus Christ says, we have to be on our guard not to fall into that kind of thing, trying to manipulate God for our own good. 
We can't, we must not pray like we don't have a true understanding of God, like God is asleep and needs to be awoken. Sometimes we pray that way, as though God is sleeping, as though God is, doesn't hear us, as though God doesn't know what he's doing. God can see our hearts. We must trust him, right? We must not be like the prophets of, of Baal, who, the priests of Baal, who Elijah mocked and said, shout louder. Or, or is your God daydreaming? Or is he relieving himself? Or maybe he's away on a trip? Or maybe he's asleep because they were cutting themselves, trying to do all things to get him to away. Our God is not like that. Jesus Christ says, avoid that, that in prayer. Don't pray to try and manipulate God. Don't, don't pray from a heart that says, I'm going to make God do what I want. Give me what I want when I want it. Don't pray that way. You're a child of your father. You pray with trust. Let's contrast that with true praying then. What is true praying? If that's how Jesus Christ defines false praying, praying that comes from not actually having a relationship with the Father, praying that comes from a false understanding of God's character, thinking that we can manipulate him and trick him into doing what we want. What's true praying? Well, first of all, true praying involves the act of prayer itself. Right? So it's all well and good us being able to say, oh, this is not true prayer. This is not true prayer. This is false prayer. This is not, I shouldn't do it. But you actually have to pray, though. You actually have to have a life of prayer. And the general teaching on Scripture, the general trajectory when it comes to the Bible and prayer, is that prayer has to be a constant part of our lives. The overwhelming instruction regarding prayer in the Bible says that prayer is something that you can only be doing faithfully when it's interwoven with all of your life when it's ever-present, when it's constant. Those are the kind of commands you have in Scripture. Be constant in prayer. I think that's in Colossians. Pray without ceasing, Paul says to the Thessalonian church. Jesus Christ himself says, pray always. The way the Bible talks about prayer is that it must be perpetually done. We must always be doing it. We must always be living a life of prayer. Uh, Brothers and sisters, I'm saying that because every single time we hear a sermon on prayer, the big rebuke comes because we know our prayer lives fall short of being constant, of being regular. The only way to live as a Christian faithfully in this area is to say that I am prayerful. You can love the gospel without anybody being able to say of you, you're a preacher person. People call me, uh, Kenny's a preacher man. Or you might say, ah, that guy's a preacher, man. You can be faithful to the gospel and no one ever referred to you as that. You can't be faithful in the area of prayer if it cannot be said of you that you are prayerful. The only way, the only way the scripture knows for the Christian to pursue the life of prayer is to pursue it in such a way that it can be said, I'm prayerful. Long prayers, short prayers, corporate prayers, closet prayers, you name it. And sometimes I often hear Christians... Uh, believers will, will, will boast in just having one dimension of that form of prayer. A Christian will say to you, no, I just always pray on the go. Like, I'm always praying, like, on the train. That's how I just pray. Like, that's what, I already know that it's, it's likely that there's something wrong with your prayer life. There's nothing wrong with the, with the undergo prayers and prayers that you have to do on the train. But it's, there has to be time for long prayers. There has to be time for prayers when you're alone and quiet. There's nothing wrong with prayers by yourself and no one can see, but there has to be time for corporate prayer when you're praying with other people. The whole, the whole thing of prayer, every color of it, must be in your life 
if you want to be able to say that you are understanding what it is to be prayerful according to the scriptures, if you like only short prayers, there's something wrong with your prayer life. This is like only long prayers. There's something wrong with your prayer life. You need to, the maturity is, is needed. And one of our biggest issues, if we're being honest, is that we are so often spiritually lax that we lack the self-discipline that often comes with prayer. We know God wants us to give more of ourselves, but we lack it. We, we easily succumb to wasting away the precious hours we have in the morning by watching something or by checking our phones. We easily succumb to all these distractions. And that's why we don't have a consistent, disciplined prayer life. You know, I've seen folks who are committed to the most strenuous forms of exercise routines, and that is uh, it's, it's a noble thing, it's, 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 it's applaudable, and so on. But it takes a whole different kind of power to be disciplined in prayer. It takes power from on high. It takes God's help, the Spirit's help. And my friends, if you really want to be like Jesus, amongst the many other things that are maybe even more important in this, you will actually be in prayer. Because when you read the life of Jesus Christ, he was always praying in the morning, in the night, by himself, in public, long prayers, short prayers. That's the very son of God. At the very least, one reason why he prayed, there's other reasons, of course, but one reason why he prayed is to show us that we will never make do without prayer. And sometimes I feel unable to complain about the state of my spiritual life when I know how little I pray. There's more to it, of course, but sometimes I feel like I'm, 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 I'm overlooking the obvious. The way to do the spiritual life is to pray without ceasing. You're always in warfare. So we have to pray. We have to be in prayer. Don't take, this is not some sentimental sermon. You're going you're gonna to take everything around it and say, oh, prayer looks so cute. When the way Kenny defines it, yeah, this is beautiful. I can see the order. No, it has to be you. You have to be praying. And no one can do it for you. Well, if that sounds like duty, let me also say that one of the marks of true praying, as well as doing it, is that you do it with some delight. It must be marked equally by delight. I don't, like, I don't want to make a separation. There is a sense of duty to it. Many of us know that we're not going to thrive in prayer if we're not a bit more disciplined. But there's also a delight. There has to be a delight, friends. God says, Jesus Christ says, you pray to your Father. You're not like the Gentiles and the hypocrites. You're praying to someone who you love. There's a sense of familiarity. You, you, he's your father. You delight in being in his presence. That's one of the things that's lacking in the prayer of the hypocrite. And the Gentile. They are devoid of that sense of delight. That sense of privilege. That sense of opportunity. That sense of freeness. Oh, wow. What a privilege we can you know, we, we can't, we have to bring this in prayer. Very often when we pray at the prayer meetings, people, some people will start their prayers by saying, God, we, we just thank you for the, the time we have to pray. I guess it's the awareness the Christian has. It's such a privilege, as we're going to sing in a moment. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. For the hypocrite, for the, for the, for, for the Gentile, prayer is a burden or a performance. It's either tiresome or anxiety-inducing. For the Christian who prays to their father, this is fellowship, this is communion, this is purpose, this is love. 
there is something wrong with your prayer life when you're not grasping that. Some of you rightfully will say, I force myself to pray. I make sure I pray. I fight to pray. And that's a good thing. Yes, but there is something wrong when that's all that there is to it. It's meant to be a sense of privilege. It's not meant to be the last resort. It's not meant to be plan B, the last thing that comes to mind, the thing that only came to mind because you were with a brother or sister who reminded you of it. It's meant to be the sense of privilege that you have. I've got this with me. I've got the privilege of calling to God. It's a delight. Prayer is meant to be a delight. There's something wrong with our spiritual life. There's something wrong with how we understand our faith when prayer is not my delight, when I'm not running to it, when I feel like it's a chore, a burden. Another thing about true praying is that it has great power. Jesus Christ says over and over again, those guys who pray for audiences have their reward. Those guys who pray for people to see them have their reward. But the ones who pray in secret, Jesus Christ says, your father will reward you. There's only true praying has power. Only when we pray in the power of the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ to the father, does prayer actually work. You know, sometimes uh, folks will say prayer, prayer changes things. And that's actually, it's a, there's a theological debate because people say, no, no, prayer doesn't change, doesn't change things. God changes things. And I, I understand well, in true praying, prayer changes things because you're crying out to the God who has the power to do everything. Unlike the sham prayer of the hypocrite that merely fills the ears of the audience, or the desperate babbling of the Gentile that only reaches out to a false God of its own, making the prayers of the righteous, as James says, availeth much, has great power produces wonderful results, says one translation of the Bible. Why? Because God hears his children. Why? Because there is no God like you who acts for those who wait on you. Why? Because, O thou who hearest prayer, unto you shall all flesh come. So that Jesus Christ teaches us to pray, our Father who is in heaven, our Father establishing the relationship and the access we have in heaven, reminding us that God sits in the place of incontestable control of the universe. Heaven, the place of supreme authority. And, and look at how Jesus Christ teaches us to pray. Your kingdom come, hallowed be your name. Prayer is so powerful because God is with us that God teaches us to pray for things of cosmic proportions. Pray for his kingdom to come. Pray for God to shake the world. Pray for God to tra transform souls. God is at work. Prayer has power. Things that only God can grant. And no wonder we live such powerless lives because we are such prayerless people. Not enough testimonies to say. Not enough times to say, I proved him over and over. Not enough examples of deliverances. Not enough examples of outpourings of the Spirit, of transformation, of strength. Have you ever felt so weak to do something and you had to call out to God to give you the strength and you knew that he did? It wasn't in you. It wasn't in your character. It wasn't in your desire. It was God that did it. Prayer is powerful. True prayer transforms things. 
And lastly, true praying is trusting. It's about trusting God's will. So Jesus Christ says, your father knows what you need before you ask him. That's why the believer doesn't need to perform their prayers before anybody else. Because in prayer, the desire is, for, is ultimately for God alone. I want, I want, I want to trust God. I, I want to surrender my life to his will. Your father knows what you need before you even ask him. So, so prayer has to be more, has to be about more than just treating God like an ATM machine. He knows what I need. Think of it. If God knows what we need before we ask him, why are we even praying? And, and isn't it true that God does so much for us even before we've asked him? God does so many things for you that you don't ask him for. It's not like every day you wake up and you don't pray for safety. God doesn't protect you. Or every day you wake up and you don't pray for provision. God doesn't promote you. In fact, some of the problems with, with, with us is God is even too good to us. God has actually, some of you has blessed you even a lot in your seasons when you were praying a lot. That's some of your problems. You, 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 and Satan's able to say, oh, hold on, do, do you even need this prayer that much? God knows what we, we're not trying to manipulate God. We're not trying to win God's favor in prayer. He's our father even when we're prayerless. But prayer is about, oh, I mean, firstly, God commands us to do this is one reason why we pray, even though we know that he knows what we want, what we need, because God commands us. Second thing is because God has ordained that prayer be the means through which he accomplishes his purposes and grants to us all those things that he knows we need. God knows what you need before you ask him, and so he has ordained that prayer be the means through which you get those things. And let me say this to you. I don't know if this means anything to you, but I, I, hope, I think I'm as Calvinistic as it can get. And I believe in the absolute sovereignty of God as much as the next person, I would say. But there are so many things in your life that will not happen unless you pray. So you can stay in the bubble of theoretical debate all you want. If God, if you can keep, it's a difficult question. You can keep being confused by the difficulty to marry the issues the sovereignty of God and personal responsibility. But if you don't get down on your knees and pray, God has ordained that there are so many things you will not experience. Uh, the disciples, and you, I wrote about this in a newsletter that I did for, 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 for this month. The disciples, a demon-possessed a demon boy is brought to them and they have to cast him out. And they, they think they're going to do it because they've done it in the past. And they're embarrassed, right? They're not able to cast out this demon. And eventually, the, Jesus Christ comes, has to save the day, casts out the demon, and the disciples say, basically, why couldn't we cast him out like we had done before? We did the same things, we followed the same procedure. Jesus Christ said, this kind does not go out apart from prayer. You can't drive this out but by prayer. They had to learn that there are some things they would never achieve apart from disciplined, constant prayer. There are some things that we're not going to be able to do for the Lord. There are some things that we will not experience in our lives if we don't pray. But prayer is that place where we entrust our lives to him, where we trust God. The God who knows what I need before I ask him, I trust you and I cry out to you. And this sovereignty of God is the reason why we pray. If God wasn't so sovereign to know the beginning from the end, the end from the beginning, why would we even call out to him for all these things that, trans, uh, that, 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 that 
transcend geographical locations. That You know, you, you pray for someone in another country if they told you they needed prayers. Why would you do that if you didn't know that God was sovereign and could control every eventuality? Prayer is this place where we say, God, we trust you. We're not trying to manipulate the sovereign God. I don't think that I can manipulate you or change your mind. I just know that I can surrender myself to you in prayer. I know that in prayer I can confess that you are my everything. I know that in prayer I can be in communion with you. I know that in prayer I can confess that I trust that you are good and you work all things together for my good. I don't need to try and manipulate the sovereign God. I just need to rest in his will. That's what prayer does for us. It does does for us. Even that physical almost feeling that we have once we've prayed, that something, something has lifted away from us. Even that feeling is consistent with the faith that we have, that God hears his children and we have to cry out to him. So Jesus Christ contrasts false praying from true praying. Let me close before we come to the Lord's Supper by saying these few things um, about prayer. Just two things in application. One, remember that fundamentally prayer is a fruit of our relationship with God. The act of praying is fundamentally about being in relationship with God. It's not a, it's ultimately, prayer is not meant to be a test or a challenge or a burden. Not ultimately. I know there might be aspects of prayer that feel that way and that are that way perhaps. But ultimately, true praying is about fellowship with God. God is my Father and I get to speak to Him. And uh, in a few weeks, I'm going to preach on the first line of the Lord's Prayer, Our Father in Heaven. And one of the things I'll be saying is, Jesus Christ teaching us to pray that way, our Father, He, 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 he draws us in to the life of the triune God. We can only call God our Father because the Holy Spirit has revealed to us that God has made us join heirs with the Son. And now we have access to His grace. Maybe one of the biggest things that will revive your prayer life is to ensure that you are depending on the power of the triune God. You, you have no spirituality apart from the Holy Spirit. You need the Holy Spirit to empower you. When the Holy Spirit empowers you, you know what he does? He teaches you about the privilege you have to pray to the Father because the Son is interceding for you. Maybe our prayers would be much stronger if we realized that we were praying through the grace of the Son. There's a, and, and there's a hymn um, that says... Uh, the Father only glorious claim the Son can comprehend, right? It's only the Son who can comprehend the Father. But it's through that, that Son that we pray. Our access to God is unimaginable. But the second thing to say, and I'll close with this, is that false praying, false praying, one of the things about false praying is that it, it thrives on works and not grace. I, I, I quoted a, an author in the newsletter that I, I wrote recently, in my entry in the newsletter recently, who said, prayer is a way of being empty and useless in the presence of God, and so of proclaiming our basic belief that all is grace, and nothing is simply the result of hard work. The problem with the person who, pray, who, who engages in false prayer is that they really think that they can earn their way with God, 
one by a great performance of prayer, the other by effort to get prayer to get God's attention. No, no, true praying is an outflowing of the general recognition that we are nothing apart from God's grace. Only the person who has truly understood and received God's grace and understands the way God's grace works, only that person can truly pray. Uh, and this grace of God fundamentally appeared in the salvation that Jesus Christ brought when he laid down his life for sinners on the cross. Maybe your approach to praying, your prayer life this morning, wherever you're listening to me, is indicative of an even bigger problem than just false praying itself. It might be indicative of the fact that you haven't actually received God's free grace, that you haven't confessed your sin to him, that you haven't surrendered your life to the mercy of God. Let me tell you, that's the fundamental thing you have to do this morning. You need to stop thinking you can earn God's favor and realize that you have to receive his mercy for your sins. Receive the grace that comes through Jesus Christ's blood, washing away your sin so that you can be at peace with God. And then with the rest of the people of God, you can truly call God our Father. Amen.